All right, we want to welcome you to this next session. Everyone doing well? You moved? I thought you were more on this side. Anyway, now I'll have to focus. I got different people sitting in different places, so maybe you were there before. I thought you were a little further over. Everyone doing well? You, you all keeping awake? Yes. Pretty, pretty good? Yes. You know, I, I'm uh, always challenged at this time of the day because, you know, I realize this is my last session. I've got to fit in everything that I have to say in my life in this last session. <laughs> No, it's, it's not that bad, but we are going to try and be done in an hour. I'm glad to see the front row fill. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? You know how it is in churches, everyone sits further back. Reminds me of a church where they had, they had a problem because everybody was seated all the way at the back and the pastor was complaining. And so the one guy said, look, pastor, I'm a rich guy. I'll take care of it. He sends him on a vacation. When he comes back, he notices there's just one pew in the whole church. He says... What is this? And the pew's at the back. He says, Pastor, just wait and see. So the pastor gets up to preach the next weekend. And uh, people start filing in. And they fill up that back row. And then a strange thing happens. There's a little whirring sound. The pew moves to the front. Another pew pops up at the back. People fill up that pew. Moves to the front. Pretty soon as the pastor gets up to preach, the church is full from the front to two-thirds of the way to the back. And the pastor says, this is wonderful. It's marvelous. He begins preaching away. He's preaching away. He's preaching away. And he has a lot to say that day. And he keeps on preaching. And pretty soon it's 12 o'clock. He doesn't know that there's been one more fixture added to the church. A bell rings out. Ding! A trap door opens up. The pastor disappears. And the congregation says, wonderful, marvelous. <laughs> so I guess it works both ways. I will try and be done on time. And I've been just giving a few minutes for people to come on in. Let's, uh, let's begin as we have with each part of these sessions. We, we sing the song, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. So uh, let's go ahead if someone would like to start that for us. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary, Lord, you. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to thank you that you have called us to be sanctuaries filled with your presence, standing unspotted and undefiled in a world that has become ransomed by the devil. You have called us to a grand victory, and yet so many of us are struggling in the nitty-gritty realities of everyday life. Help us to know how to overcome, not by our strength, but because you are the almighty, all-powerful God. Now, right now, this afternoon, Lord, I want to pray for those who are in the valley of decision. They are grappling with things. They're saying, I want to give this up, but I, I can't. I seem to be stuck in it. Lord, give them the victory. And be with all of us, Lord, as sinners. May a relationship with you be so powerful that we can face anything because God himself is with us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, forever free, change you can really believe in. Can we believe in change? Is it possible for people to be set free? Now, I've never been a slave, unless you count marriage, Slavery. 
that's why I said I've never been a slave. <laughs> See, I, I was prepared for that. <laughs> uh, what, did, what did somebody say? You know, a marriage isn't a word, it's a sentence. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, everyone. I noticed you waited till my wife left until I brought out those. <laughs> I've never been a slave, but what I've found is that I am a slave. I am a slave to addictions and passions. When I was about 12 years old, I used to do a sport in motorcycles. I was a motorcycle rider. It was called foot-up trials. And God said, let there be light. There was light. There was a sport called foot-up trials, and I invited one of my friends to come and watch me. And so he was like, yeah, let me come watch you. This will be great. So he came out to watch me. But I was pretty new at it. And the basic idea of this motorcycle sport is you're out in nature, and they form this obstacle course with rocks, and, and you've got to dodge around trees, and there's mud pools, and you have to ramp over certain things. It's an obstacle course. And what would happen is every time you put your foot down, you'd lose a point. And every time you fell off in the midst of the obstacle, you would lose maximum points, and then you, you'd go through the obstacle several times. So he came to watch me, and he's watching as I go through, but I wasn't very good. So I kept falling down and sliding, and I, I, was, I was a mess. You know, I, I couldn't get from one end of the obstacle to the other without falling off my motorcycle. So he's watching, you know, a little bored, and then it's coming towards the end of the day, and I am determined. I am going to show this guy that I, I can get through an obstacle course without falling over. And the last obstacle was in a muddy section. You had to slide along this really muddy section and be able to keep your motorcycle moving. And then just as you got to the edge of the lake, you had to do a sharp turn and then go up this hill. So I am so focused as I'm going towards the edge of the lake and it's all muddy and I've got to do the sharp turn. But somehow when I do the turn, I start sliding into the lake. And I'm not joking, but my whole motorcycle went into the lake until I was up to my helmet in water. My friend thinks this is hilarious. <laughs> and so he is laughing so hard. I bring my motorcycle out, we turn it upside down and water is pouring out of the engine. You know, and I'm like, my bike, my bike. And there's water coming out of the exhaust pipe and the carburetor. And, and then he's, I, and I finally say, all right, all right. So tell me what you thought of the day. And he said, I noticed something. He asks the question then, do you like falling? <laughs> he says, because you seem to do it every single place. You fell down. But the last one, he said, was the best. <laughs> you know, you really got yourself in a stink in that one. And now I look at my Christian life. Do I like falling? Do, do, do I like falling? Because I seem to do it all the time. I mean, is there something wrong with me that I can't seem to navigate through this obstacle course? I mean, isn't this whole Christian thing just a mess if there's no victory over sin? How can it be? You know, we seem to be helpless and hopeless, right? We're facing things... And the devil gets the upper hand. How many of you would agree with that? There are times when the devil gets the upper hand. And so we have the struggle with sin and we feel helpless and hopeless. And we're there, God, please don't let it happen again. I can't give in again. And sure enough, bam, we come falling down again. So after a while, as we're struggling with that, we eventually say, you know what, I'm going to give up on this thing. You know, I believe that God loves me anyway and He's going to take me to heaven anyway because I am tired of struggling. Right? We reach that point. There's no point. Either I'm a mess and I'm going to go to hell anyway or 
you don't really need to have victory over sin because it's not possible. So we end up in this predicament. Which way is it? And we look at the Bible and we seem to read something that's, that indicates the same struggle. Now Romans chapter 7 verses 14 through 25. We're not going to read the whole thing, but, but you know what it's, it's saying there. Verse 15, take, take a look at Romans chapter 7, verse 15. For that which I would do, I allow not, but what I would not do, but what I hate, that do I. Don't you love the King James English? <laughs> if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Take a look at verse 19. For the good that I would do, I do not, but the evil which I would not do, that I do. Right? What, what's happening here is like, I want to do what's right, but I, I, I find myself not doing it. I say, I would love to do that, but I do the opposite. Any of you been in that situation? Yeah, I, I want to do that, and I do not. I am, this is not me. I will the kind of person I am, I'm a great person. I would never do that, except for last Saturday night. <laughs> and so we find ourselves in this predicament, and, and some people have said, you know what, that's the reality of the Christian life. This is how it's going to be. You're always going to be wanting to do something, but do the opposite. That's how it is. You know, just get used to it. You're a sucker. You're a loser. That's it. You, you, can't, you can't do it. But you know what? God loves you anyway, and He's going to take you up to heaven. And there's a certain element of truth, right? Does God love us? Amen. Is God wanting to save us? Amen. Does God save sinners or righteous people? Sinners. sinners. He saves sinners. I mean, that's the whole point. People brought this woman who had been caught in adultery. They brought it to Jesus. You notice the guy wasn't there. They, like they, they just, he just happened to disappear. And, and we think we know who that was, but that's a different story. So they, the guy, they just they set up a situation. Then they kind of removed the guy like he wasn't naked. They removed the guy. That must have been embarrassing for his friends. But they remove him, and here is this woman. They bring her to Jesus, and they all like, lay it on. You know what the law of Moses says? Kill her. They start picking up the stones. And Jesus says, all right. Anyone here without sin, you get to throw the first stone. He says, just to help you out in case you've forgotten, I'm just going to write some things in the sand here, and that may jog your memory. Saturday night, Mary's house. <laughs> Walks away. <laughs> Next one, Sunday night, baseball field. Next guy drops it. He just starts going through one by one and nailing them. They all drop their stones. See, each one of us are sinners. Jesus Christ said, I came to save sinners. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus came because He knew that we were in the mess of sin. So don't feel like, I'm the only loser out there. You, you know what? We are all losers. Amen. 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 We are losers. You are a loser. Right. Amen. You know what? I'm a loser too. Can we have a losers club? It's called the church. All right? So we get together in this great place called the church because we believe. You see, now there's, there's two views of the church. The one is, this is a losers club, club, and one day God is going to magically flip a switch and we will suddenly become the conquerors club at the second coming. Just chip, chip, we become a conquerors club. But I say, you know, is that all that God wants? You know, you come into church, bless you, God forgives you, whatever mistakes you make, He forgives you. But I'm sorry, you're stuck in this situation for another kind of 30, 40 years. Just kind of hang in there with your sin. And one day we're going to get rid of the whole problem. Is that it? No. 
Or does God have something bigger in mind? That He wants the church to be a reflection of heaven. Somehow the church, God's little place on earth, becomes a reflection of heaven and, and deals with the problem of sin. So when we deal with this, you know, it says, look at verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Now, some people have said, is this the converted or the unconverted Paul? If this is the converted Paul, then this is what we're going to face. But others have said, no, this might be the unconverted Paul, but then why would he be struggling with the law? Because he says, you know, I desire to do the law. So they, they've battled it backwards and forwards, and it seems like there's a contradiction in Scripture. Now take a look at this. He says in chapter 7, verse 14, I am carnal. But then in chapter 8, verse 7, he says, the carnal mind is what? Enmity is an enemy against God. He says in 7 verse 14, I am sold under sin. But in chapter 6, he says, being then made what? Free from sin. And he says, sin has no dominion. It does not rule over you. He says in verse 15, what I hate that I do. But in chapter 6 verse 2, it says, we are dead to sin. Shall we sin? God forbid. He says he is in captivity to the law of sin. But in 6 verse 12 it says, Let not sin therefore reign, in other words, bring you in captivity in your mortal bodies. In, 20, in 24 he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And in chapter 8 verse 6 it says, To be carnally minded is what? Death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Somehow something else is going on here. Would you agree? Is either this is a contradiction or something else is going on. So, the one, so this struggle of I can't overcome, it reigns over me and I'm just stuck with it and I want to do this but I can't do this. If this is describing the Christian life, then everything else seems to be a contradiction. Right? So how are we going to resolve this? Take a look at this statement from Ellen White. Paul's experience in his struggle against sin is the experience of every one of us. Now notice the qualification. You, you all follow that? the experience of every one of us, when we realize the true spiritual depth and meaning of the... You see, until a certain time, Paul was saying, I'm pretty good, I'm a Pharisee, I do everything right. I, you know, when it says pay tithe, I even pay an extra little bit on the end. And uh, when it says do this, I even do something extra there. And he thought he was fine until he came to the law which said, Thou shalt not covet. And when he began to think about that... Thou shalt not covet. It went to the heart of who he was and he began to say, I'm a wretched man because I may keep the law externally, but in my heart I'm breaking it all the time. Does that make sense? So this is what happens to each one of us when we realize the true spiritual depth and meaning of the law. We recognize that we are what? Powerless to obey it. So it seems like she's saying we don't have power either. We recognize that even though we realize we should keep it, our desires run contrary to it and we realize how hopelessly condemned we are. Now notice what she goes on to say in Steps to Christ here. It is impossible, it is what? Impossible for us of ourselves to escape from the pit of sin in which we are sunken. Did you all get that? How possible is it? Impossible. impossible. Everyone, this is Mission Impossible. But notice what Mission Impossible will do. Our hearts are evil and we cannot change them. Education, no good. Culture, no good. The exercise of the will, whew, I thought that would at least help, no good. Human effort, psh, all have their proper sphere, but here they are powerless. 
The way to overcome sin is not by putting your willpower on steroids. It is a complete change. They may produce an outward correctness of behavior like the Pharisees, but they cannot change the... See, that's the problem. See, you may, you may look good at church, you know, when you get there and everything's pretty good and you walk in with your Bible. I got my Bible to go to church and I'm going to open it up and show them. You see, some of it's even underlined. You see, I, I, got, I got the outward look, you know. I, I've dropped off those things that dangled on the ears. You know what I'm talking about? I got the outward look. But there's something going wrong inside. <laughs> the heart comes out Saturday night. They cannot change the heart. They cannot purify the springs of life because the, the, the origin, the source, is impure. There must be what? A power working from within, a new life from above. Notice those two elements. It is internal and it is external. Before men can be changed from sin to holiness, and that's what we're dealing with is holiness, that power is Christ. He is the victor. Now, I've got to say this real honestly, because the challenge is today, you would almost think, you would almost think that the Adventist church was into legalism. Because what we tell people, <coughs> you see the devil doesn't want me to say those words. That's better. The devil does not want us to know the secret power. So what he's done is convinced us, you know what you've got to do? You've got to read your Bible for an hour a day. If you just read your Bible for an hour a day, the sins will go away. You ever tried that? Works for a week? Maybe. It just doesn't work. So then we tell people, oh, you know what you've got to do? The real problem is that it's the friends you're hanging around with. Now your friends can affect you. There's no doubt about that. We need to deal with those things. But it almost sounds like the way out of this problem is what you do. And I tell you, it doesn't work. That power is who? It is Christ. His grace alone can quicken the lifeless faculties of the soul and attract it to God and to holiness. So you're there saying, I don't want to read my Bible every day. I don't want to get into this. The real thing we need to do is come to Christ. As we start spending time with Christ, as we start letting His Holy Spirit work on our hearts, we become attracted to Christ. Amen? We become attracted to spiritual things. We desire holiness. I mean, you just think about a relationship. You know, with my wife... The, the reason why I don't commit adultery is she would get so mad. <laughs> you know, if I committed adultery, oh, it would be misery. She would make my life miserable. I mean, she, I, I live in fear of committing adultery. Is that how it works? Do you think that's really going to change my behavior? What changes my behavior? You know why I don't commit adultery? Because I love my wife. See, with God, it's a love relationship. I've been saying throughout today, I don't know how many of these you managed to get to, but holiness is a byproduct of relationship. You don't get holiness by doing a list of things, check, 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 did all those things. That is the Pharisee's guide to holiness. The way we get holiness is by having a relationship with God because He awakens within us a desire to leave behind the sins of this world. 
The way we can overcome sin is because we learn to appreciate what Jesus has done so much. Since our problem is within, we need help from above. You can't fix it. Amen? Everybody got it? You can't fix it. Oh, that's a challenge, isn't it? Is there any way to get that to... I've got Fundy. Where's Tim there? Can you... Oh, there we go. All right, there we go. So, here's what happens. If you trace through Romans, you see some keys. And I just want to give you some keys to success from the book of Romans and then kind of break it down into real simple language of how we can do this. Before we come to the law, we appeared alive, but we were still guilty. We, we kind of felt pretty good. We were unaware of our sin. We lived by the flesh. You know people like that out there? They're committing sin and they don't feel bad about it. Anybody know people like that? Well, that's the one group. Then, as we become aware of what the law says of how holy God is, there is a knowledge of sin, but it brings what? Guilt. And we feel condemned by the law. We feel like we're under a death penalty, like we're going to die. We find that our flesh is weak and it wars against the Spirit. We find ourselves caught. And so Paul in Romans 7 is right in this stage. He is describing how he was after he became aware of what the law said. you all follow that? Then we want to move on to the next stage because I believe that Paul finds victory. Take a look at the end of Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Look right at the end there and that final verse. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And then he summarizes. He says, so then, this is 7 verse 25. With the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. He's describing his predicament. But he goes on in chapter 8 to talk about the victory. There is therefore now no what? Condemnation to them which are in? Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. At a certain time, things change. And that's where you want to be, right? You want to move from where you are right now, following the flesh. You want to move to being justified by Christ's life and death, to where you get to no condemnation. We die, and the Spirit of life rules in righteousness. We become more than conquerors. That's what it goes on to say. So can we believe in victory? I want to quickly share with you a quick Bible study where we can believe in victory. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. And we are going to fly through here for the sake of time. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. And it says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the what? Outermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. God can save us to the uttermost. Romans 8 verse 37. What does it say there? Romans 8 and verse 37. It says that in all these things we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 says, Now thanks be to God which always causes us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. And I could go through text by text for the sake of time we want. I just want to let you know text after text in the Bible says that God is able. Can you say amen? amen. He who has begun a good work in you, he is what? Faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We know that when we face difficulty, God promises victory. When Jesus faced the devil out there in, in uh, the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil, he knew that God's power could carry him through. So the question is, how do we move from this 
this feeling of defeat where we fall and fail time and time again till we get to, to the stage of victory. Praise be to God who has given us the victory in Jesus Christ. How do we move to that? How do we deal with sin? Take a look at Hebrews 12 verse 1. Wherefore seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us do what? Lay aside every weight and the sin which does so, what? Easily beset us. Does he recognize what happens there? And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. I want to let you know that God can give you the victory. Now, how does it work? Now, some people say, I'm scared to try. Any of you been in that situation? I'm scared to try. Let me give you a promise. And this isn't up there on the screen, but I want to give you this promise. It's from 1 John. The first chapter of John. And chapter 2. Sorry, the first book of John, chapter 2. First book of John, chapter 2. And it says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. That's in verse 1. But notice, so notice what he says. Look, I want you to not sin. Everyone follow that? Don't sin. I, you, you've, got to, you've got to be able to do this. But he says, I know that there's going to be challenges. So notice what comes next. If any man does what? Since we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So here's how it works. You are scared to step out there. It's like walking. Can you see this, uh, this section over here? Now, I am scared to walk along here because it's possible that in my excitement I could fall over. But I start walking here. And the reason why I do it, let's imagine that this, is, this stretches down a thousand feet and I can crash to my death. Just imagine that. So I, I walk along here, and I'm scared to do it, but I know I can do it if I knew there was a safety net underneath me. You follow that? In the same way, this is what John is saying. He says, look, I know you struggle with sins, and I, would, I wish that you wouldn't. But here's what will happen. You walk. You walk. You run the race. You run it. And if you slip and fall, guess what? There will be a safety net. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Don't be afraid. Don't go, I can't do it because I'm at fall. No, he's saying, walk, because even if you do fall, God will be there to catch you. Christ will be there to catch you. Amen? So this is not saying that we can't start walking out. We need to set aside these sins and then run the race that is set before us. So I want to give you some key principles. I've kind of given it A, B, C, D, E. Some key ways in which we can get steps to victory. Number one, admit the problem. Admit the problem. Success, I've found, lies in surrender. Now, I used to do it the other way. I used to say, okay, God, I got a problem, but I got it under control. Any of you done that? So now, admit the problem. Say, I am a sinner. I can't change it. I, I am powerless. Do you remember those words? I am powerless to affect change. Until we admit our helplessness, we cannot change it. Here's what's going on in our lives. You see, when I put self on the throne, when I'm trying to figure out things, you see all these little dots here? In my life, things are out of control. These are all a mess. There's all these tensions. My interests are directed by self, resulting in discord and frustration. Christ is outside the life. But what we need to do is put Christ on the throne room. Amen? And He will bring harmony to the different parts of our life. What we do with self then is remove self from the throne room and put self yielding to Christ. 
This is a conscious decision that you have to make every day. Amen? You have to make a decision. I am going to take myself off the throne and I'm going to yield myself to Christ. That's why there's a great prayer in Steps to Christ that says, every day we should say, Lord, I consecrate myself to you. I lay all my plans at your feet. And so we do this conscious surrendering every single day if we're going to have victory. So first we admit. Secondly, we believe. We have to believe in the possibility of change. They did an experiment with a guy in hypnosis and they kind of lay, laid him down and they, they, they did all their little hypnosis things and then they told him, you cannot pick up this glass of water. And the guy would, would take his hand over and try and pick up the glass of water and he'd try and, and pick it up, but he couldn't. Why not? He had been told that it wasn't possible. Now what's happening in today's world, we have been told that you can have victory over sin. And so because we've come to believe that it's not possible, we, we've just given in. I want to tell you that it is possible. Now may you, will you fail sometimes? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that you can't step out in faith and believe in the possibility. Amen? You think God would tell you to do something and then say, but you have no power to do this. What He does is He supplies the power. For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world. And then it goes on to our third point, even our faith. What we can do is claim. You can claim the victory. Now, does anyone have any car keys here? Anyone have some car keys? Okay, here we go. What, what kind of car is this? It's a Ford? Okay, could I have? No, I'm kidding. All right. So here's a Ford. What kind of Ford? Okay, oh, it's, it's an F-150, so that's all right. So here's a Ford, and I would like to give this away. Anyone would like, like his car? Okay, you'd like the car? All right, here we go. Okay, now what did he have to do to get the car? You understand this is an illustration, right? <laughs> what did he have to do to get it? He had to claim it. He had to claim it. What does claim mean? Claim means I reach out my hand and grasp it. If you read Steps to Christ, there's this powerful section on faith where faith is the reaching out of the hand to grasp God's promises. Now what promises do we claim? We claim His forgiveness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. We can claim two things from that verse. Forgiveness, 1 John 1 verse 9. Forgiveness and victory. When we come to God, we can believe that He forgives us. Now here's what happens with sin. We engage in sin. And then the devil comes on because his name means accuser. That's what Satan means, accuser. So he comes on. He says, you low down, good for nothing scum, lower than a snake's navel. Let me tell you about your life. You can never overcome. Didn't you promise God this before? And look at what's happened to you. Now, what happens is that guilt so weighs us down that it pushes us away from God. You all follow me? So when it pushes us away from God, it becomes a barrier and the devil wins twice. What we need to do is say, you know what, you're right. <laughs> I am lower than a snake's navel. But if you want to have an issue with that, you go speak to my dad. Because uh, you may know my present, but I know your future. <laughs> so what we have is the reality that when we confess our sins, what will, what will Christ do? He will forgive us. 
But not only that, he will promise us the victory. We need to claim that victory even before it happens. One of my favorite stories is from, oh, sorry, is from the uh, Old Testament in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And it has the story of King Jehoshaphat. And he gets a message that there is this whole army coming against him. In fact, not one army, but three. And so he says, uh, this is a problem. So he calls an emergency meeting. And you know what kind of meeting it is? A prayer meeting. Everybody is there together. He prays. And this is his prayer, kind of a really powerful prayer. He says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Immediately after that prayer, a young man jumps up and says, I have a message from the Lord. Stand still and see God's salvation, for this battle does not belong to you, but to the Lord. So you know what he does, Jehoshaphat? Incredible. He gets his army together. He says, we're marching into battle. And they're like, uh, didn't you hear what the prophet said? The battle belongs to the Lord. He says, no, we're going to march into battle. But what I'm going to do is I am going to send the choir first. Why would that be a bad idea? They have no weapons. And they're like your cheerleaders. You do not send the cheerleaders onto the field to play the game. A, it will be painful for them. And B, you will lose your support, you know, the ones to cheer you on. Bad idea. But he believes that if God has promised it, he can praise God even before the promise takes place. And so there they are. And, and everyone is so excited. And I think they were maybe a little out of tune. I don't know. But they're so excited and they're singing away. It such, makes such a great noise. It doesn't say this in the Bible, but this is how I imagine it takes place. They are marching up this hill down into this valley. And as they're marching up the hill, it's such a noise that the enemy thinks that the battle has already started. So they jump out. And of course, the Lord directs this. But they jump out. And there's this massive battle before, the, before they even get there. They come over the hill. And as they start making the descent, the battle's already over. In fact, there is just loot. They've left behind all their things. There is loot lying all over the ground. It takes them like four days to pick it all up. And they call the name of that valley the Valley of Baraka, which means the Valley of Praise. See, even before you get to that situation, against an army, against a sin that seems bigger than you, you can begin to praise God that He already has a valley of praise waiting for you. Amen? They have a massive camp meeting there. And uh, they just keep praising the God. It's just an incredible story. So how do we get forgiveness? If you look through the New Testament, you notice several things. People acknowledge their guilt. They said, I'm guilty. They confess their particular sins. They accepted the forgiveness. They didn't just stop there and beat themselves up. But they accepted the forgiveness. And they believed God's promise. Amen? And uh, that's what we need to follow. So how does it work? Forgiveness is a gift, but we must receive it. We must incorporate it. We must say, God, I accept this gift from you. I'm not going to let the devil beat me up. I accept your forgiveness. Then the fourth element here is decide. We must admit it. We must believe. We must claim. And then we need to decide. Your decision is the decision to do what? Surrender. Why? Because only God can bring the victory. Now, I'm gonna, I've said this like 10 times today, but I'm going to say it again. You cannot fix yourself, but you can choose to surrender. Does that make sense? You can make that choice. You can say, God, I'm going to give this up. And you know it's hard? I was in a situation. I'm not going to tell you the specific situation because you'll laugh at me. I was in a situation. All right, I'll tell you what it was. 
it was Pringles. Now, there's nothing wrong with Pringles, but, it, but their slogan is true. Once you pop, you can't stop. So there I was looking at these Pringles and I thought, you know, and, and I knew I should not be eating in between meals. I knew I didn't need these Pringles. I knew this was the wrong thing to do, but I, I looked at those Pringles and I said, I just want one. <laughs> just one. And in that moment, a voice came to me that said, pray. And you know what I said? Later. <laughs> because I knew if I prayed, I would find the victory. But I wanted the sin more than I wanted the victory. Do you, you follow me? The problem was not that the victory wasn't there. The problem was that I didn't want the victory. See, it's not like God doesn't have the power. The problem is we don't want His power when we're in the temptation. So we don't buy Pringles anymore. All right. <laughs> I, you have to surrender. You have to make that conscious decision to surrender so that God's power can work. Then engage. And, and this is important because I've found you have to engage in a relationship with God or none of this works. You have to engage in becoming holy, in fighting with the devil. It can't be all passive. You see, all of these are a little more passive. But as you get down to deciding and engaging, it gets more active. You must make an active choice to follow God and to enter into a relationship with Him. A religion without a relationship with God is legalism. Do you, did you follow that? When you try and follow God outside of a relationship, that is burdensome legalism and it will not work. So I went back to Steps to Christ and I said, this is all good. You know, I looked at all of these principles. This is great. But how do I do this on a daily basis? And here's what I found. She says about how to do it on an ongoing basis. Now that you have given yourself to Jesus, she says, number one, do not draw back. Does that make sense? Do not hold back. Do not take yourself away from Him. In other words, where's the focus here? Is God ever removing Himself from you? No. But day by day say, I am Christ. I have done what? Given myself to Him. This, the greatest battle, is the battle of surrender. This is the battle that you must fight day after day. Ask Him to give you His Spirit and to keep you by His grace. Amen? So what we need to do is hand Christ our lives and He will have the victory. Now this was, this was liberating. This was totally liberating for me because for so much of my life, as a brand new Christian, when I became a new Adventist, I was a total legalist. Any of you were like that? I was legal because I, I was like, you know, keep the Sabbath, doing that. Uh, have Bible study, doing that. And I just said, whatever you want me to do, God, I'll do it. And so I became a legalist. But I started getting guilt-ridden. And they found that Adventists tend to suffer more from guilt than other Christians do. Now, maybe we're more aware of sin, or maybe we're less aware of the Savior. The child cannot, by any anxiety or power of its own, add to its stature. Now, notice the conclusion. No more can you, by anxiety or effort of yourself, secure spiritual growth. Did you get that? You cannot make yourself grow. You are just as dependent upon Christ in order to live a holy life as is the branch upon the parent stock for growth and fruitfulness. Apart from Him, you have how much life? No life. You have how much power? No power to resist temptation or to grow in grace and holiness. But abiding in Him, you may flourish. I was reading through a Desire of Ages over this last semester. I've been teaching a new class on that. And I noticed a constant term that comes up in the Desire of Ages about the life of Christ. It's what I call the CCs. 
constant communion. Throughout the book, Christ had a constant communion with his Father. And if you want to have victory, it begins in a relationship. What did I say holiness is? Holiness is a byproduct of a? relationship. So if you really want to have victory, you need to abide in Christ. Now, how does that work? You know, I'm going to abide in Christ today. I'm just going to, you know, can I do anything? Can I talk to anyone? I mean, do I just have to be praying? What about going to a monastery? Won't there be a good way to abide in Christ? Just sit there in my little room. No. What is abiding in Christ? It is turning your face towards Christ. You know, what a, you know what repentance is? Anyone ever told you this? Repentance is a U-turn. Now, the problem with a U-turn is that you're still in the same place, right? But you're now facing in the right direction. Spiritual growth is when you begin to walk towards Christ. Have you arrived yet? No, it's a process. Are you, are you going to be able to overcome sin overnight? You know, just... You know, you go to sleep and bang, you wake up the next morning and, and it's gone. Sometimes God will do that, but many times you're going to struggle. It is a process by which as you grow in Him, your spiritual life begins to flourish. You are not to look to what? Yourself. Not to let the mind dwell upon self, but to look to Christ. Let the mind dwell upon His love, upon His beauty, His perfection, His character. Christ in His self-denial, Christ in His humiliation, Christ in His purity and holiness, Christ in His matchless love. This is the subject for the soul's contemplation. It is by loving Him, copying Him, depending wholly upon Him. That's why I define holiness as wholly His. That you are to be transformed into His likeness. It is as you focus on Christ that that life becomes yours. So how does it work on a daily basis? I begin to train my mind to think on Christ. Here comes a little thing along, and, and here's the mistake most people make. I want you right now not to think about pink elephants. <laughs> what are you thinking about? Pink elephants. Here's the mistake people make. They focus on the sin instead of the Savior. Oh, I've got this sin, and it's dragging me down, but I am going to fight that sin. We are going to go hand to hand, and I'm going to go down. But I'm focusing on the sin. Instead, we turn the focus around, we focus on the Savior. We're going to have to throw aside that sin, but we focus on the Savior. We should not make self the center and indulge what? Anxiety and fear as to whether we shall be saved. All this turns the soul from the source of strength. Commit the keeping of your soul to who? God and do what? Trust in Him. Talk and think of who? Jesus. Let self be lost in Him. Put away all doubt and dismiss your fears. That's why what I want to do as, as I wrap up my section tomorrow, there'll be some uh, good presentations, but I want to put the focus back on Christ. Now take a look at these. Have you seen these diagrams before? This was a painting commissioned, uh, you probably can't read it there, by James White in 1876. Now when he commissioned this, he had been fighting for all his life to uphold the law of God. And so what he did was, uh, he had this painting commissioned of the great controversy. Now what is at the center of this painting? The law, right? The law, it's right at the center. Now Christ is there, but why is Christ there? Because He fulfills the requirements of the, the law. And then you have a table here, and uh, eventually back there you have the heavenly Jerusalem. So you get that? Now, after James White died, Ellen White decided that this painting needed to be updated. So she commissioned a new painting. And take a look at this. She made the focus what? Jesus. 
And where is the law now? What happened to the law? It's only represented by Mount Sinai in the corner there. Can you see that? That's the only place it has. She's taken it right out of there and put it over there because she wants the focus to be Jesus. By the way, another little uh, fact here. Notice how little food there is on the table and how much food. You can't really see it from there. But she made sure that when you came to Christ, there would be good food at the end of it. It would be a blessing, right? And she put the focus back on Christ. As we lift up Christ, sin tends to find its place. Are you following me? Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to have to do hand-to-hand -hand battle, and that's what we want to deal with. What do we do with real sins that are dragging us down? I've said, put Christ at the focus, but you say, give me, give me some other things to do. If you look at the book of Romans, it has several suggestions. I'm not going to give you all the text, but you can look from Romans 6 through Romans 8. In Romans 6, it says that when we come to Christ, we have to die to self. Now, what does that mean? I've found most Christians kind of keep self around. There's a story of a lady, I think she was from Texas, she had a ranch there. Her husband died, I'm just going to call him John, and she had him embalmed and stuck in a glass casket and he, would, he was right by her stairs. So when she would walk into the house, she'd say, hi John, you know, and then she'd walk up the stairs. When she walked out of the house, she'd say, Bye, John, and she'd walk out. Well, it so happened that she went over to Europe, met a wonderful Christian gentleman, and they got married, and they come back to her ranch, and they're at the front door, and he picks her up to carry her over the threshold, swings open the door, and sees John. Ah! You know. <laughs> and he's like, what's that? What's that? She says, that's John. And he says, let me tell you, John has got to go. In our lives, are we keeping the old man around or have we put him to death? Now, how do we do that? The Bible says, die to yourself, but it recognizes, the Bible recognizes that you might not always be able to put the guy to death right away. In fact, you don't. He continues going for a while. So, so the Bible goes on to say in Romans, count yourselves dead to sin. Now, what does the word count mean? It means reckon. Make a calculation. <laughs> say, I am not going to treat him as if he's alive. So this is what happens. Old man John is sitting in a cage over here. So here he is in the cage. You put him in that cage by the power of Jesus Christ. Amen? So here he is in the cage. He says, hey, Pringles. I don't hear you. Hey, just one. <laughs> You're dead. <laughs> and I know that by Jesus Christ, I count you as dead. By the power of Jesus, you are no longer having victory over me. What can one Pringle do to hurt you? Just one. All right? So what he's doing is he's trying to call you back. Open the cage. You have the key. You see, Christ locks him in the cage, but he gives you the key. Amen. You have the choice. Are you going to go back and let him out? Or are you going to keep him in the cage? You have that choice. You've got to count him as dead. Then it says, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't give it the freedom. As soon as it begins kind of climbing out of the cage, you say, I'm not giving you anything. So when we see something that leads us to sin, at the very first moment, we should put a stop against it. You know, we, we talk about this sometimes when we're dealing with uh, members of the opposite sex. You've got to bounce your eyes. Somebody walks in who, 
uh, who's uh, looking in a certain way that's going to suggest impure thoughts to you, you've got to bounce your eyes. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, you've got to train yourself not to focus on those things. As you stop feeding the old man, he eventually dies in reality. Does that make sense? Then it says, make no provision for the flesh. I have found that this is ridiculous, but somebody is struggling with smoking, and I'll go and visit them. I say, how's it going? You, you want to stop smoking? They say, yes. They bring out a carton of cigarettes. They say, take this. I am done with smoking. And I say, um, what about the other box? How did you know I had another box? I said, there's always another box. <laughs> and so he goes, oh, man, I was keeping it there just to show how strong I could be. The Bible says, make no provision for the flesh. Amen. Amen? I, you know, it's like the, the kid who was on his, way to, uh, on his way to school and his mother said, now, Johnny, remember I told you after school, I don't want you to go swimming. And he says, yes, mom. She says, now, I just want to check your backpack, make sure everything's all right. So she goes through his little backpack and she says, Johnny, what are these? She pulls out a pair of swimming shorts. He said, well, Mom, I just thought I might be tempted on the way back. And so just in case I was tempted, I, I decided to pack my shorts just in case. <laughs> when we are struggling with pornography, we can't simply say, I'll just overcome it. I, I, I'll just, it'll be fine. I'll never do that again. We have to make sure that we cannot even access those sites. Can I be real with you? We, we, we can't pretend, oh, I'll never go back there again. I mean, I mean I'm done with it. I'm good. That, that has no hold over me. I, I, I'm done with it. You're lying. It's too addictive. You've got to cut off your access to those sites. You've got to get filters that you can't break. You've got to get covenant eyes. You've heard of covenant eyes? Where it emails out to somebody else, your accountability partner, all of the history of the websites you visited that day or that week. You've got to have something to hold you accountable so that you can make no provision for the flesh. Are you following me? You, you've got to cut some things out. Now, other things are harder to, to get rid of, but as far as possible, make no provision. And then it says, yield yourselves as instruments. Oh, man, that's a, that's a bad slide. <laughs> yield yourselves as instruments of righteousness, not of unrighteousness. So don't get that wrong. <laughs> All right? Yield yourselves as members of, of righteousness. Now, here's what an instrument is. An instrument is like a pen. Can I borrow your pen? Does this pen have any choice in what I do with it? Thank you. <laughs> it has no choice in what, in, what I, in what I do with it, right? Because it is my instrument. In the same way, when we yield ourselves to Christ, we become an instrument for Him. We need to get actively involved in doing good activities, right? Get out there. Do service. Uh, there's great things happening all around you. You can get involved. You can make a difference. If you just sit there in your room, you'll beat yourself to death. Get involved and do something positive. If you are struggling with bad thoughts, get involved with the opposite sex in positive ways. You know why? Because when you begin to see the opposite sex as individuals, then you will see their personhood and not see them as sex objects, right? Get involved in positive ways. Live out there. God has given many of you the opportunity to be single. One day, you won't be single anymore. You'll be like me, three kids. <laughs> Life will be forever different. Right now, you want to just go somewhere, you just pack up and go somewhere. We, we have to, we have to like load three station wagons and, and, and call on special forces just to get out of that place. You know, we have eight pieces of luggage 
That's our hand luggage. When we travel anywhere, it takes eight pieces of luggage for us to get onto a plane. You have opportunities now. Get involved. Make a difference. Do something. Don't just sit there going, oh, I'm struggling with my sin. No, get out of that and yield yourself to God to make a difference. Amen? Amen. Walk after the Spirit. You can either sow to the Spirit or sow to the flesh. So begin filling your mind with spiritual things. Sow to the Spirit. Begin Get involved in Bible studies, prayer meetings. Get out there. Go to GYCs. Amen? Start filling yourself with spiritual things. Get on audio verse. Listen to all 5,000 sermons on there. Whatever it takes. But start filling your mind with spiritual things so that the flesh has no place. And then the flesh will be in its rightful place. I'm not saying be prudes. I'm saying be pure. You follow that? The problem of pornography, and I have to deal with this before I close, is that 91% of men have been exposed to pornography. Did you know that, ladies? The majority have challenges with it. This is the statistic that we have out there. First, we have to see pornography as a sin. It is not something that God wants us to do. If we look lustfully after a woman, Jesus says that is adultery, it is a sin. You all agree? Amen. 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 Pornography is probably the number one reason for poor sexual satisfaction in marriage. Because what happens is we are so caught up in in the cyber world that no one can ever measure up to those models that are out there. And they are all focused on giving satisfaction to the individuals. And that creates this view of marriage that it's about satisfying my sexual desires. Remember that getting married does not mean a sexual free-for-all. We dealt with that earlier. You are training yourself for self-discipline in marriage. Now you may think that marriage, when you get married, it's all going to be, you know, I, I can engage in sex whenever I want it. <laughs> there are two people involved here. <laughs> this, this is not a machine. Press play now. This is not the internet. These are real life. If you have not washed the dishes, if you have been angry with your wife, and then you want to turn around, men, and, and start getting all cozy for sex, you are going to have to build bridges before you can do anything else. We need to deal with the problem of sexuality now. It is selfish, and it is focused on ourselves. We need to turn it out to what God intended it to be, oneness, where we give ourselves to someone else and minister to them. We need to change our philosophies. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that chastity is not non-sexuality, but that it means a positive approach to relationships with the opposite sex. Amen? It is not pretending, it's not saying, you know, I'm not a sexual being. I am not a sexual being. I'm not a sexual being. Well, what are you then? That's kind of scary. <laughs> Instead, we need to say chastity is saying, I am a sexual being. But because I want to follow God's will, I cannot express my sexuality in certain ways, but I can express it in other ways. I can engage with members of the opposite sex. I can see sex as holistically. I mean, that's what Adventism is. It's holistic. I see sex not just as a physical function, but as a spiritual function. I see sex as my sexuality as ways in which I can engage with people in positive ways to build up their personhood because male and female reflects the image of God. That's part of my sexuality. And when I build up one of my lady friends, I am building up the image of God in her. That is part of my sexuality. Jesus was a sexual being. Amen? Because He built up. You notice how often He built up woman. Woman who had been abused, who had been hurt, who was suffering from guilt and shame. And he was able to build him up. That was 
expressing his true male sexuality. Amen? And we've turned it into a physical thing that takes 30 seconds. So how do we deal with habitual sin? And this is where I want to close as we end here. How are we going to deal with habitual sin? And there's a few promises here, a few things that we can deal with. Uh, number one, claim the promise of escape. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, it says, For no temptation has overtaken you except that God has provided a way of escape. So when you're there in the midst of it, you're going, I can't do it, I want to give it, I want to give it. Remember that there is an escape hatch. All you have to do is press prayer and then surrender. Does that make sense? There's an escape hatch. Number two, deal with the root, not the fruit. The reason why we have addictions is because we have filled up the hole in our heart with something other than God. As we begin to deal with the root of that problem, and for some people, it goes back to childhood. We are often victims of what other people have done against us. And instead of dealing with that root, we continue to deny that. It is time to be honest and open about the way, the way we react, the way we do, we do. It is because there are roots inside of us that need to be pulled out. Thirdly, we need to pray for the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit's job to give us victory. We need to be honest. We need to get accountability. As I mentioned, we need to focus, and this is really critical, on choosing, not promising. I, I learned this when we were working with people who are giving up smoking. When people promised, I'm never going to smoke again, when they broke that promise, everything was terrible. It was like they, they had gone against the covenant. And we learned to say, no, you don't say, I promise I'm not going to do this again. You say, today I choose not to smoke. You, you understand the difference? Today I choose Jesus Christ. Today I choose His will for my life. Today I choose to be pure. Today I choose to be holy by His strength. As you make that choice, God will make His promises a reality because ultimately it's His promises that work, not yours. Let's pray. Father God, some of us have been struggling with sin and its practical challenges. We've had to, to face the devil and we've come up short. But you have promised the victory. I want to pray for the individual out here who feels discouraged. I want to pray for that person who is feeling like, I, I want this, but I don't believe it can happen. Speak to them right now. Change their frame of reference. For with Christ, all things are possible. Give us the victory. For today, we choose life. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.